Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with playwright Dominique Morrison. Skeleton Crew, the third installment of her trilogy of plays about her hometown of Detroit is now running on Broadway. Using the automobile industry as its lens, Skeleton Crew looks at the lives of the American worker and the declining respect and care for the people who built this nation. Hey, Reggie. Huh? I heard they closed down Kemp. Where you hear that? Boney J. News from Boney J always comes crooked and on a diagonal. You know not to listen to rumors like that. No, nah, no, nah, he showed it to me in plant closing news. It's in the newsletter? Think I'm lying? I guess they went on ahead with it then. Thought they got revived when that new Chrysler came out. Now, Kemp was the number one company for exporting their shops. And they doing them within now. That make us the last small factory standing now, ain't it? Sure do. That 25 line is going to be a massive undertaking. They're going to have to bring in rigging crews from all over. If you start hitting the gym more days, you can go on down there and find you some pickup work. Too bad I could give a damn less watching another plant turn into a ghost town. I'm straight on that. Afraid of ghosts? Them assembly line ghosts? Hell yeah. Shut up, dude. They say them empty plants are breeding ground for them. You can hear the echoes of machines just running and running in the hollow space. So them fools that be going down there playing in the ruins? Them dumbass white boys come over from Wednesday and Ohio to stand in front of them empty plants and take pictures like it's some kind of cabaret step and repeat? Heard that be the last picture they ever take. Some of them jokers never make it back out. The old gas vapor swallow them whole, disappear. That's stupid. <laughs> Following in the footsteps of others, including August Wilson, Amir Baraka, and Intishake Shange, Moroso is bringing black life to the stage. Like those writers... In the case of her trilogy, she relied on what she was familiar with. First and foremost, though, tell me about growing up in Detroit. What was that like for you? You know, I always tell people growing up in Detroit for me was um, seeing myself reflected at every level of excellence. You know, I mean, I was uh, Detroit was predominantly black growing up and I and 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 black folks were running everything, meaning they were running, you know, the police department. They were running. They're your fire department. They were your educators. They were your boards. They were the government. They were everything. They were your doctors, you know? So I, I saw reflections of anything that I could be everywhere that I looked. Um, so there was never, I didn't, it wasn't until I left Detroit actually and went to school in Ann Arbor. I went to Michigan. That was the first time I ever felt like I was not the majority, <laughs> you know? And it was a different, it, it had a, and lasting impact on me, sh that shift, you know, because I was quite comfortable um, and very, and could thrive in a particular kind of way in Detroit, that leaving Detroit, the thriving felt like a, 
uphill journey as opposed to an obvious and an expected journey. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is Detroit had been that way for a long time. I mean, it, it, it got a black mayor when, when I was a kid, you know, and kept that for a long time. So it did give you a sense of accomplishment. You did see, as you say, all of that around you. Um, You, you go on to university of Michigan and, and I was reading that you wrote your first play um, in college, you were writing in college, but did you perform plays as a kid? Did you always want to do this or did that come later? I did. I had a mom who took me to just see plays when I was young and I was in a school that did plays. You know, we had a live, um, multifaceted disciplinary, you know, multifaceted disciplines that were available to us inside of my like K through eight education. So we, you know, we got exposed to plays and Shakespeare in my English class, you know, um, and uh, and we were and we had teachers who were pretty passionate about it. I got exposed to my Angelou's poetry in the eighth grade. And I always had uh, educators who were pushing me toward this, who saw something in me, both as a performer and a writer, that the, both of those things were things that I was inclined to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I became a spoken word artist when I was in college as well, and it just felt like it was a natural thing because I was doing poetry when I was, you know, in elementary school and middle school, I was doing it in high school. And when I got to high school, um, then I also had an educator there who trained me and, and lots of other Detroit artists who are out here. You know, you're seeing them on television, on Broadway, on films, you know, these all, a lot of us have uh, one educator in common. And that's mm-hmm. Marilyn McCormick from Cass Technical High School. She won a Tony a couple of years back for her work in arts and education. So um, I just I feel like I've been very fortunate to always have educators around me to never back me up from it, but to sort of keep exposing me to more and more literature and more and more literary arts so that I would be both a writer and an actor and a performer, that those things were possibilities and not limitations. You know, I, I went to Cass as well, and people always ask me what what was it about Cass. You know, people all yeah. over the country have heard of Cass Tech yeah. High School, and I tell them it was less about the idea of something special in the water at the school as much yeah. as it was just the affirmation that you could do something, yeah, and just the history of people doing that. You felt like, well, I got to do if I'm here because yeah. it was the history. Um, do you feel that now your work and what you're doing is an extension of that? And is that what you want it to be to inspire others as Maya inspired you coming up? Do you want your work to be that? Absolutely. Like anytime I meet, and I meet a lot of them, uh, young people who are now studying me in their college courses and they're, especially if they're like in theater, you know, they're reading my plays, they're using monologues from my plays to try to get into schools, um, you know, or get into grad schools or get into shows, you know, and um, and I'm always I'm heartened by that because when I was growing up like them, I wanted more access to writers like me and they were they were not being taught to me that I won't I will not say that they didn't exist. People can say things and I think language is powerful. I never say they don't exist because I don't know what exists, you know, just because something isn't being um, 
programmed to me doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the world. I'm really conscious of like, you know, it's like my husband's a musician and, you know, it's like, if you don't hear it on the radio, it's like, then it doesn't exist. Like, no, you're hearing what the radio program for you to listen to. If you really want to hear music, you know, full, if you want a full catalog of music, you have to dig in the crates. You got to find your own artists. You got to find music. And there's availability now out there for everyone to be able to find the kind of music they're into without waiting for someone to tell them what's good, you know? And so, um, and that's sort of how I feel about writers and plays. I had to look for my own plays in college um, because the educators that I had in college and the curriculum was not going to expose me to any Black writers, any Black playwrights. Um, or any writers of color that were significant and were writing about an experience that I could relate to. So when I was in college, I had to do that for myself. And I am heartened when I meet students who are like, they found me and they found Katori Hall and Terrell Alvin McCraney, Marcus Garley. They found so many other writers out here who are also writing for them. Then they know that their experience is not in a box, you know, no matter what they're being trained. Here's what's interesting uh, to me about what you've been able to do. I mean, the first person, obviously, that comes to mind is August Wilson. But when you start thinking about trilogies and, and, and really utilizing your life and your existence to present it to people, you know, a lot of people, particularly if you're from a blue collar city like Detroit, don't see it as glamorous enough often to write about it. They want to write about New York even Chicago or LA, they want to shine it up a bit, but you've been able to take what you knew um, and, and build it into something that's palatable for everyone. Um, Conscious effort. Did you ever think uh, of going away from that? Oh, uh, no. I mean, and, but I never, also, I never write thinking, I don't know who's going to respond to my work. And I don't know. And I don't, I don't mean to say that I don't care because I absolutely care if my work is being heard and received. I'm just not, whether it's going to be successful that I don't really have as much care about. I care whether or not it's going to um, have a chance (laughs) to live and be heard, but whether or not it's going to, how many people are going to love it. I don't know. You know, what I try to do is, is write what is important to me and what speaks to my own heart and my city. That's my family. I mean, I have over 200 family members in Detroit. That's like my, my city is my family, you know, and somewhat. And when we had Detroit night on Broadway, uh, on Friday night, uh, it felt like one big family reunion in that in that theater, in that Broadway theater. And it's not because we were all necessarily blood related, but we had something very in common. So everybody knew at least somebody in that room. And uh, and that and I remember feeling like, man, I was raised in this city. I was raised in Coleman Young's Detroit. But that whole city felt like uh, for all of its good and its bad of what happened during um, in the city during that time, we definitely felt like one big family, you know? And so to me, anytime anyone's talking about Detroit, they are literally talking about my family. <laughs> and so I don't, you know, I just, I care about my family enough to want to write about us and immortalize us in literature. What's it been like to get Black stories on Broadway? Because at the end of the day, 
black stories, particularly if they're not musical, mm-hmm. uh, for as advanced as we are in comparison to what it used to be to get black stories on Broadway, it's still difficult. Very. Um, what's that been like for you? In this season, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty stressful um, <laughs> because this is a the I'm a part of eight black playwrights who were in an unprecedented season of us all being produced in the same season on Broadway. That's never happened before. It's historical. And it's weird that it's historical because it's 2022. You know, <laughs> it's like, wow, you know, it's a big deal to have eight black playwrights on Broadway. So Broadway's a pretty big uh, in an entity, mm-hmm. eight is not that big a number to me, but uh, it's, it's a big number to most people. Um, and so, but that, but that, this is happening during a time when it is like the hardest time to be putting a place, you know. And 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 I had a musical. I also had a musical on Broadway, which is so. I, my first, my Broadway debut was not a play. It was my musical, "Ain't Too Proud," about the life and times of the Temptations. And, um, and that was built in, you know, they have a catalog. It's already, people already love the temptation. So I, all I had to do is not mess it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people come and see a temptations musical, they, they're getting what they want out of that music, you know? So, um, but even that couldn't survive COVID and it was a hit. I mean, it broke box office records and every town we went to, it broke box office records on Broadway and we still closed because COVID, ran through our company and we didn't have the um, the producers didn't have or didn't want to continue investing in the show and losing money during a, a time when we would normally be be our biggest moneymaker doing Broadway's biggest moneymaker, which is the holidays. Um, and so this has been really stressful to try to put up straight plays because they already don't get as much audience as musicals. Um, and, you know, and it's hard and, 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 and plays by artists of color rarely do get on Broadway in general. Um, and so to be the test dummies of COVID, <laughs> mm-hmm. to come back and, you know, have our plays be measured at this time of whether they're successful or not. No black play on Broadway this season has made money. So if money is going to be the measure for whether or not they're ever going to do this again. We're already we're already lost, you know, um, so money can't be the measure. In fact, it has to be demanded that that is an unfair measuring stick during this time and during this season. And rather the desire and the want for this work to be on Broadway will ensure that if you continue to do this when we're through this pandemic and people are spending money on theater again, which they're starting to already. Um, then, then these shows will make money, but the model has to be different. So I, I have found myself in the middle of feeling co- quite excited to be making history and also quite used that this is an odd time to be trying to test out whether or not this is a, a workable thing. Let me ask you what I've asked many artists along the way, uh, particularly movies and television, as we've gone through the aftermath of George Floyd and and quite frankly, the white guilt money that has come Absolutely. our way to to give us um, the kind of content we've seen um, in sheer numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there is there a concern that um, this may be a, a fad for Broadway, a, a, you know, a blip on the radar screen, uh, particularly if it doesn't make money? Because I remind people, uh, you know, particularly when I lived in New York, the idea that if you 
if you outprice a community because Broadway tickets aren't cheap and we mm-hmm. don't have as a people the disposable income that whites have. Right. Uh, and whites tend not to see something that's black as something that they can relate to. You know, mm-hmm. it has to really become huge before whites will even turn and think there is yeah. a connection, i.e. ain't too proud to beg. Yeah. They love that music. So there was yeah. an automatic connection for them. And then they go to find out that, quite frankly, family stories or stories are typically universal at the end of the day. Um, What's your thinking on that in terms of where we sit? Uh, Because I do worry in all genres of uh, creation, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it be, you know, the arts, whether it be fine arts, whether it be music Mm -hmm. in in your discipline, um, you know, what happens after the, the guilt goes away? And when the bubble bursts, because yeah. I think what we have to know is none of this is permanent, right? Like there's, I mean, even we're in this golden, I write for television and for film and we're in these like golden moments in television where like everybody, you know, if you're a black woman writer in television, you feel like, okay, this, we're a hot ticket. They want us in that room, but that's out of a void, right? Like they, you, we're, they're trying to, when the people are trying to like hurry up and make a right or wrong on your body, <laughs> you know, um, that that's temporary. You know, it's like, it's like, you're like, you're like a bouquet of flower, apology flowers. <laughs> you're not like really, um, you're not being carefully and, 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 and artfully designed to last and to be a sustainable thing for the future. So this feels like a real, especially when people are just catching a wave and catching a trend and there's no infrastructure that suggests that they're going to change their model going forward. Like, for instance, if you're just, you know, we have talked about this in every field right now. Anyway, you know, no more optical change, no more like just putting me on your poster. Mm hmm. But yet everybody's still making decisions, looks nothing like me, you know, but then there's a lot of optical hiring behind the scenes. There's a lot of like, hey, we'll put this person of color. okay, still underneath white leadership. But let's put you in a very performative looking position that has actually no um, decision making power behind it. You know, so what is happening or if you are being a person of color or a black person in a position of power at a network or at a theater or in a production company of any kind, um, you are still there's a big old eyeball on you. There's a gaze on you. So everything you program is going to be like whether that was successful or not is going to be there's a heavy gaze on whether or not you can do it, whether you're capable, which then means that gaze trickles down. So even when you have black leadership or you know latinx leadership they're still doing that leadership under a very white supremacist model of doing business um and so will change really happen if we're still just we're replacing the faces but not the not the minds yeah yeah <laughs> we're not replacing the mindset then that's not that's just optical that's not really going to change the the systematic structure i want to see the structure change which means that i think it's going to take a little bit more um, radical thought and courage and bravery to to do something very very brand new. Yeah, I guess I'm worried about it too. Sure, I think we all are. When we come back, Dominique talks about why saluting the black working class is so important to her. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Over the years, black plays have been a thriving industry, just not on Broadway. Shelley Garrett, Tyler Perry, and David Talbert all became popular playwrights that found loyal black audiences, but critics often panned the work. In spite of being profitable, Broadway never saw these plays as viable or worthy. Even black plays that have more traditional Broadway themes don't get the same attention, audience, or support on the great white way. That, of course, is the ironic nickname for Broadway. Morrisot knows this and tries to bolster her production by street marketing to patrons that are often overlooked by Broadway theaters. She held a Detroit night where Detroiters, including Mayor Mike Duggan, actress S. Apatha Merkinson, educator Michael Eric Dyson, former NBA star Jalen Rose, and I all showed our support that night. I wondered about how she felt about the lack of outreach from the Broadway community to people of color over the years. I'm not seeing enough effort to get that audience Mm -hmm. in order for it to grow. And that is always my beef with theater in particular, producers off Broadway and on on Broadway. I just don't see a big enough effort to include, you know, for me, Detroit Night, I was very instrumental in that and uh, and was a very much um, an advocate to calling my community to come to the theater, you know? And I had support by the theater. You know, they didn't block anything. I had support from Marcia Pendleton and WBLS and just so many people who were just amplifying that night to happen. But the people that got there were out of me calling my people and going, hey, I need you to call your people. I need you to get 10 people. I'm going to send you this invitation. I'm going to make an invitation. I'm going to do that. I was my own marketer for about two weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And who has time to do that <laughs> if right, you're right. a playwright? I'm not a marketer by trade, you know, um, but I'm I'm always I do that all for all of my plays. And I always go extra because I, I know how important it is to change the demographic of the audience. My work depends on it. I need my work in front of Detroiters if this is going to be a show about Detroit. You know, I also need my work in front of the working class. If this is going to be a story about the working class, I need it in front of black people. If this is going to be a story about black people. It just it doesn't make sense that the people who are on stage 
are not also reflected offstage, that there needs to be a merge between our traditional white audiences who have the economics and who are in the culture and the elite culture of going to see the theater, that they, that, that, they, that, that space that they occupy needs to be shared. It needs to be a shared space with other people of other demographics and other economic means. Let's talk a little bit about um, the third in the trilogy, the, the Detroit Project, as it's known. You did D- Detroit 67, which talked about the riots and the changeover, uh, and Detroit was one of those cities that really, um, you know, as you look back, was changed forever uh, until most recently, uh, you know, the white flight that happened after 67 really devastated the city for many, many years by means of a shrinking tax base and the like, and then mm-hmm. a Paradise Blue, which touched on, uh, which a lot of people don't know about, you know, the, the true sense of what jazz was in Detroit, mm-hmm. you know, a hub and, and obviously the musicianship that came out. And then Skeleton Crew, um, which, which looks at um, the Detroit auto industry. And what I, what I loved about it is it, it's bigger than that. I mean, it really is a, a metaphor for what, you know, working class black people uh, have mm-hmm. gone through in, in this nation. Uh, talk to me about why you decided uh, on, on that as a, a theme beyond the obvious. Well, I had been reading August Wilson's 10 Play Cycle about his hometown, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. And I was already familiar with August's work, but when I started reading his plays back to back, I just got this like swollen sense of like, my God, like the way this man has captured the jazz and the rhythm of his people and of the people of Pittsburgh specifically, they must feel so loved and like seen every time they read this man's work, you know? And I wanted to do that for Detroit. That was it. I, I wanted, I was like, I got to do this for my city. How do I do this? I'm going to do three because 10 is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was young. I was very young still in the moment. I was like, I'll do, I'll do three. We'll see if I get through three. And uh, for me, those three eras, like you said, 1949, that's my play Paradise Blue that looks at the jazz community inside of Detroit's, uh, what I call Detroit's Black Wall Street, this Black business section, you know, Um, there was all Black ownership and what happened on the brink of a gentrification urban renewal plan that obliterated that part of town. Um, 1967, Detroit 67 is about the 1967 rebellion in response to the police uprising, I mean, police shootings and police brutality and harassment on Black residents at the time. And um, and I didn't expect that to be a contemporary play. I thought, I didn't expect any of them to be contemporary. Mm-hmm. I thought I was writing about the past, except for Skeleton Crew, because I wrote that in 2010. And that actually was supposed to be contemporary. And now it's about the past. And now it's about the present again, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, And Skeleton Crew, I knew I wanted to write about the auto industry because I had experienced my family and friends um, taking severance deals and feeling like their jobs were really, um, you know, on the line and really didn't know what was going to become of them. And they were losing their homes, you know, in 2008 in Detroit. And I was like, I got to I got to explore this. I got to know what's happening, you know, and I have to um, I remember when Mitt Romney ended up running against Obama you know, for Obama's second term. And I remember him saying, you know, we should have let Detroit go bankrupt. And I just kept thinking about that. Like, who? wow, that's brutal for my city. Like, who are you picturing when you're saying that? You must be picturing some executives going to Washington in jets or something. Like, but you could not possibly 
be picturing my aunt, you know, who worked triple overtime in a factory so much that it was like she got, she was almost narcoleptic, you know, would fall asleep at the dinner table, no matter what was going on around her. You know, you couldn't be talking about, you know, my cousins or my friends who like, who this factory built my family and they have, they take pride in their work. So who are you talking about when you say, let it go bankrupt? You know, like you just want to see my city completely collapse. Um, and so I wanted to expose the 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 day, the the everyday laborers, the working people that helped to build this country and that don't look like what we were told, you know, when um when Trump won the presidency, we kept talking about the because the the white working class have been ignored, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. as if that is all. So when we say working class, it's like we're only imagining like white people in middle America that we've forgotten about somehow. When in fact, the entire working class has been forgotten. And that means black and brown and that's everybody. You know, um, the majority of this country is working class. And, and my city is built on working class black folks. And so I wanted to also, um, it has become about talking about a new face to who we think of when we're thinking of the working class. This production allows her to work with two giants. The wonderfully talented Felicia Rashad headlines the play, and Ruben Santiago Hudson is directing. The actor, playwright, and director has a long history of acting as well as overseeing productions on and off Broadway. Ruben and I, we go back. I mean, this is our, I don't know, our fourth dance together Mm -hmm. in production. Um, He's done... This is the second of my three play cycle that he's to, uh, my second of the plays that he's done in the cycle. The only one he hasn't done is Detroit 67. And we'll see if we can change that. But uh, but this is he and I, you know, he's a he's sort of an adopted son of Detroit. He's mm-hmm. from Lackawanna, but he also did, you know, college in Detroit and lived in Detroit for a while. So he has a, a love for it and an understanding and appreciation for it. So we have come together many times to work. He's my partner in crime. He's, you know, he's my mentor um, and he just helps to add so much depth and humanity and dimension and perspective to my work. He is like the dream of a director to have work on my Detroit cycle. And this play in particular, he always steps it up a notch. Ruben builds a family every time we work together in our cast. He make it just like Skeleton Crew, the, the, that family of auto workers. They're, they're a unit. They're a family. You know, they have their issues. They fight. But they are a family, you know. And that's what Ruben does. He makes uh, his, his working crew um, a family. So I just, I adore him. He's, uh, he's obviously a legend in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his play, Lackawanna Blues, his one-man show. And his television, you know, that was turned into a television uh, miniseries. I mean, it's just it shows you just like he is a master at what he does. And I just feel super fortunate to work with him. And then Felicia Rashad. I've seen buildings burn to the ground on Devil's Night. People squatting in houses with no running water. My mama could barely afford to keep the gas on and we still found ways to stay warm. I don't like nobody questioning my ability to rise up. I'm a born and raised East Side, And if there's one thing I know is how to rise to hell up. been um, remarkable to work with. She is just watching her grace and her generosity as an artist and her skill. This woman, you know, she has not stopped growing from day one of working. 
she starts off small and it's just like, it's like watching her mold clay and like the face just gets more and more defined on that clay every single day. This woman never stops working. We'll be on breaks talking to each other. She's sitting over there studying her script. I have just never seen anything like it, <laughs> to be honest with you. And it just, she brings so much integrity and, um, and care to her craft. And I've just felt very fortunate. And to, to watch her play this kind of role, Faye, the role she plays in my play, Faye, is like no other role anyone has ever seen Felicia Rashad do. It's like nothing else in her canon. And she has a huge canon, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it has also just been delightful to watch her drop in, get funky, get <laughs> like one of them women with the dirt under her nails mm. and with a little swag and her walk and, and her talk. <laughs> you know, and bandanas and Tim's on, you know, like she's just a different kind of person in this play and has been amazing to watch her transformation. Yeah, she is not Claire Huxtable in this. Oh, she is not Claire <laughs> not even close. Let me ask you, as as we close out here, the idea of um, you, you mentioned you you write for television and you are mm-hmm. in creation of a number of projects mm-hmm. with a number of networks and the like. Um, fill us in on whatever you can. Um, and then what you what you hope to see down the line? Are we sure? Well, I'm actually I have just started rehearsals for my next production, Confederates, at Signature Theater off Broadway. So while Skeleton Crew is running, Skele- uh, my new play, Confederates, it starts running in, in March on March 8th at Signature Theater. And I'm excited. I'm super excited about this play. Uh it stars Michelle Wilson, Tony-nominated actress Michelle, Michelle Wilson, who, who starred in Lenata Just Sweat on Broadway a few years ago. She also starred in my premiere of Detroit 67. Um, and it also stars Crystal and Lloyd, uh, who, who worked with Ruben Santiago Hudson and I on my play Paradise Blue. And it just has a cast full of amazing people who are, who are just, uh, they're salt of the earth. Is, and our director is Story Ayers. What's special about that is she's my former student. And now she's directing my work. And wow. she's like a master of my work. Um, so I can't, I'm, I'm excited about this play for the people that are working on it, but also for the um, subject. This is one of my more, I think this is maybe the most bold and and radical play I've ever written. And it is about two women, you know, an enslaved woman and a professor at a modern day university and how they are both navigating institutional racism and and sexism and, um, and classicism. And it's, it just, as the play is a satire. So it's funny. People don't know about that. And as the play goes on, it's really hard to know the difference between which one's the plantation and which one is the, is the uh, institution of higher learning. You know, the line gets blurred. There's a lot of fun doubling that happens in this show. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a real, it's a, it's a blast, but it's also um, in this era of critical race theory and people trying to hide the history of institutional racism in this country, this play is like right on the nose of all of that stuff. It's, it's forcing us to reckon with our past instead of hiding it, you know? And, um, and it's actually inspired by uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article. He asked one time um, why more Black people aren't writing and studying about the Black involvement in the Civil War. And when that question came up to me, uh, Lou Bellamy brought it to me with his theater, Penumbra Theater. And when it came up to me, I said, um, 
Well, you know, Lou, I want to know what were the black women doing in that time? You know, and what I know is we were not just uh, victims of sexual violence and we were not just raising other people's babies. We were also revolutionaries and fighters and spies and active in the participation of our own liberation. And so I want to see um, that's sort of what this play is about. I feel like it's a call out to Sojourner True, Harriet Tubman and Melissa Harris Perry, Nicole Hannah Jones. It is very much um, a salute to, to black women fighting for our freedom then and now. Well, listen, we are you are fast becoming uh, one of the most prolific uh, writers of, of our generation. And it w- was wonderful to be there for Detroit night. Uh, wonderful to see all of what you're doing. And, uh, you know, we certainly will look forward to whatever comes out of that, wh- however you do it, whether it's longhand or, you know, yes, type sir. in or whatever it is. <laughs> we, look, we look forward to the next one. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Another big thanks to Dominique. Her play Skeleton Crew, starring Felicia Rashad, is on Broadway at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater now. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.